Yat eh, and welcome to Determination, a podcast about sovereignty, self-determination, indigenous brilliance, and the people who embody them. I'm your host, Dara Blackwater Yinishye. Beshbachai Nishle Dotsena Jenny Bashish Chin Ado Beshbachai Dashiche Ado Tajini Dashinale. I am very excited to share this conversation with you today. This one is a long time coming, as I recorded this with Crystal earlier this year as the pilot episode for this podcast series. Crystal is a wealth of knowledge about community broadband networks and connectivity. She's a true community warrior, and she's so much fun to talk to. Crystal is a citizen of the Macaw Tribe, which is located in present-day Washington State. She has a resume about a mile long because she's done so much incredible tech, broadband, and policy work in the tribal, state, federal, and international realms. She'll tell us all about the hats that she wears, most importantly, about raising a brilliant daughter and a few beautiful dogs. So I have a few notes for you before we begin. You'll need to know some definitions for today's conversation, though we tried to make it not super technical. The first definition you'll need to know is spectrum. Spectrum is the invisible radio waves that data travels on during a wireless connection. If you're listening to this podcast on your cell phone, you're using spectrum right now. It's a natural resource, it's a necessary component of a wireless connection, and it's very valuable. The second definition you'll need is feasibility study. A feasibility study is when a tribe brings in experts to do a survey of what it will take to connect their community. Tribal leaders may end up with a sort of shopping list of everything that they will need in order to connect their land. The third definition is backhaul. Backhaul is the pipe that brings connection to your community from the global internet, often through a city. So if you're in a small community, the backhaul is probably coming from your nearest city, and that's what connects you to the greater internet. The last definition you need is last mile, or what's sometimes called first mile. This is the leg of the internet connection that finally gets the internet to the user's home. Some companies call this the last mile, but more community-minded companies call this first mile because we're thinking about the user first and not the telecom company before them. So this should put us all on the same page. Without further delay, here's Crystal Hottaway. There's a line at the store. I'm indigenous. Oh, creator, it's a bore. I'm indigenous. I hear the clerk break a snore. I'm indigenous. I could sleep on the floor. I'm indigenous. I hear your whispers behind my back, looking at me like I'm a. I am Tutis Klisach of the Quidditch de Nation. My name is Crystal Hardaway. Um, my Macaw name, my Quidditch de name is Tutis Klisach which is um, a name that my mother carried. Um, I like to introduce myself like that um, because it, it, I mean, not just to tell you who I am, but I mean, to tell you where I'm from, um, but also it's a reminder to me of who I represent. Um, mm -hmm. And so starting out each meeting as, as a reminder to myself of I'm here representing my people and my family, that is, um, that, that really, puts that responsibility back on my shoulders of representing and representing well. So thank you for having me today. Of course. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. And it's interesting you say that you introduced yourself through your mother, because um, that's exactly the first 
we have four clans that we introduce in our introductions, um, clan introductions. And the first one is always your mom's mom, because it sounds like we have that similar similarity that that's where your lineage and like, you know, who you really are comes from. Is that yeah. accurate to say? It's very accurate. It's a very, um, I mean, while there's uh, a lot of patriarchy, but it's very matriarch, matriarchal leaning. Um, you know, that's the, the, the women is, is who hold power for life. And so that's, yes, you're very accurate on that. Yeah. Um, so I have a little bit written up here about Macaw and I'm hoping that you can fill it in. So, um, my understanding, I've never had the pleasure of traveling to you guys, but, um, it's pretty much as far Northwest as you can go in the lower, lower 48 in present day Washington state. Is that right? Yes. And it sounds like it's pretty rural where you are. I've heard you say one way in one way out. Yes, definitely. Um, and it's, a uh, um, it's a curved, curved road with a lot of hairpin turns. Mm -hmm. um, it, it follows the rocky coastline. Uh, it goes through the forest. So mm -hmm. um, it, while it's the only road in and out, it also poses um, significant risks to um, just our way of life really um, in the winter months because that one road is often um, covered by a mudslide or a downed tree. Um, there are actually, I mean, and, and um, there's one of the roads um, that we have, um, it's, there's actually a um, dip in the road. Well, I mean, it's come apart, a crack, and it's like a 14 foot crack now. Um, and so getting to us is extremely hard um, because we are, you know, because we are so out of the way, but also because the roads are so dangerous. Um, so yes, it's, it's a very, um, very pointed route to get to me. <laughs> wow. And so as we're talking about broadband and really framing what your um, community looks like, those are all considerations that you have to think about, right? Of like what kind of um, trees are around, how tall they are, how dense they are, um, you know, how close you are to the coast. Those are all considerations that you've had to think about, right? Definitely. The other things um, that we have, have to take into consideration too is because we're so close to the Canadian border, um, when we get FCC licenses, there's this new element too now where we have to be up to date as far as what the international treaties between the United States and Canada are. So wow, um, yeah, it's another la layer of expertise that um, comes with the job that you have to do. Oh my gosh, there's so many challenges that you don't ever even think about until you're you start doing it and someone goes oh but didn't you do this didn't you didn't you think <laughs> about this and it's like oh I guess we should have but I didn't even think about it um so I should say that you are the grant writer for the Macaw tribe and you're also their tech team chair is that right yes ma'am but I'm sure you wear a lot of other hats what other sorts of things do you do for the tribe either in your um your you know, professional capacity or even kept more casually? Um, so uh, I am the uh, co-chair for the Affiliated Tribes of Northwest Indians Telecommunications and Technology Committee. It's always such a mouthful to say that. <laughs> um, and so I, I've been co-chairing that for five years now. Um, and my co-chair is Danae Wilson from the Nez Perce Tribe. So um, we are able to cover a lot of ground with that. Um, I also sit on this, I'm in my second term for the FCC Native Nations 
communications task force. Um, and what we do is with that one is we're looking at the different policies that the FCC have and how it impacts Indian country. Then we go even further and we make recommendations on mitigation strategies to be able to be more um, assistive to tribes um, and more helpful. I also um, am currently sitting on the Washington State Interoperability Executive Committee, and that's this, um, and I represent AT&I for that. Um, so I'm representing the 29 tribes of Washington State um, in this, and this is an interoperability with public safety. Um, so there's a lot of sheriffs, a lot of police, a lot of um, emergency preparedness people that are involved in that group. Um, next, I also sit on the um, FirstNet Tribal Working Group. So FirstNet is that, um, the network that's going to be built nationwide um, that is specifically for emergency responders. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're looking at, um, AT&T got the deal. So um, now they're in um, construction mode and they're starting to build, build out their networks to areas um, that previously were unserved by AT&T. Um, I also sit on the Clallam County, um, the Clallam County Economic Development um, board of directors. Um, and so that's for Clown County. I represent the tribe on that. Um, I also sit on the Makades committee. I like to cut. So Makades is our annual celebration. Oh, cool. um, yeah. And so we, and, and it's huge. It's, it's the last weekend of the summer and um, it's like homecoming for Makade, for Macaw. Um, everyone comes home from Makade. But I also like to call it the party planning committee because basically <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> when you break it down, it's, it's so much more than that. But I also, that's my fun term for that. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. That's great. And, yeah. I've also, you know, done a lot of basketball coaching, a lot of, yeah. So I'm, I'm not very idle. <laughs> I, I have, um, I'm involved in, in many things, um, but you know, with, with the, um, with the broadband stuff, that's really, it's become my passion. Um, I didn't, when I was a kid, I didn't grow up. I mean, I didn't think I would grow up to be a, a broadband policy analyst, um, but it's, it fits and mm -hmm. it is, there's so much work to be done there that, it, it, you know, I, <laughs> I get excited about the work. Yeah, and you've done so much of it, and I'm sure you've had so many great opportunities. And um, yeah, that's I I really love your story. I think partially because of that, because you were told by tribal leadership back in what 2013 that you were going to solve this problem for them um, or be a big part of it anyway. And you didn't really have a lot of background, right, in broadband or even technical stuff. Um, what was that? process like for you from, you know, being told this is what we need you to do to, you know, slowly be becoming empowered to actually create change in your community? So, um, you know, the, when I was given the assignment, um, I, I was, I can say now in all honesty, I was not happy. Um, mm. I wasn't happy about it because I was intimidated by it. Um, I didn't know anything about broadband. I didn't really know what the issue was. I didn't really know um, what the, so, and by not knowing what the issue was, I really didn't know what the solution was. Mm -hmm. And so um, it, it took um, getting to know, getting to um, sit with my IT people. Um, we, there's um, IT within the tribe, but then also um, the school IT person, Larry Murner, 
he was very patient with me um, because I'm like, okay, Larry, I need you to dumb it down for me. Break out the crayons and, and tell me just basic building blocks. Um, and the other, the other person that was really instrumental in, in teaching me um, about technology and about how it's going to be um, applied was our uh, contractor by the name of John Krause. Um, he was extremely patient with me. And I remember it was probably, you know, and took like maybe a year. After. Every meeting I would walk away with a headache because it was just so much information and so much, so much to do, it was overwhelming. And um, I remember this conversation I had with John Krause um, where he was telling me, uh, when that's this is when we were constructing our middle mile, and he was telling me about the licenses and um, getting the frequencies managed um, on one of our middle mile points. And I stopped. I, I mean, I, I was really quiet, and I said, "John, I understood everything you said, and I don't have a headache." <laughs> and this is wow. <laughs> and how long did that take? How long into it? About a year. Wow. About yeah. a year. And, and so, you know, the other thing too is, is um, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I liken it to um, learning a language, uh, you know, immersion has been shown to be the most successful way to learn a new language. And that's pretty much what I had to do, just immerse, immerse myself in this entire subject. So that meant going to meetings and, and talking with people and um, trying to, you know, prep myself so that when I did talk, I, I even though I didn't exactly know what I was talking about at the time, I, I needed to kind of sound uh, intelligent enough, like I knew what was going on. Yes. <laughs> so it was it was a steep learning curve. It really was. Um, but you know, about 2014, 2015 is is when I really started to hit my stride with this. Yeah. So it took about a year, and and I hope that 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 people who are faced with similar tasks can find encouragement in that, that you don't have to be an expert from the very get-go because you had so many people to, you know, bounce ideas off of and, and people who show up. I, I think that once you set your intention for a project like this and really throw your heart at it, that the teachers will show up. And there are so many people with so much knowledge that it sounds like you connected with that really helped you in that process. Definitely, definitely. And if there are people that are feeling discouraged right now, what I what my advice to them too is is to be, you don't need to be an expert on broadband. What you really need to be an expert, quote unquote, um, is your area. What are your challenges? What are the challenges for your area that you need to overcome? Um, is it location? Is it um, topography? Is it geography? Um, is it no spectrum available you know there's there's so many different uh, each tribe is is so unique in, in what their challenges are and what their strengths are um and so that's where i would recommend people really focus their energy sure i think that's great advice um i think i should set up the problem a little bit for people who maybe are new to this issue and i have a couple stats here um which is that about only 60% of people on tribal lands have internet access. And when we're talking about rural tribal lands, generally it's only about 30% of people on those lands that have internet access. And for Macaw specifically, Crystal, correct me if I'm wrong, but y'all have about 1,100 people living on the Macaw reservation and you have about a quarter, about a hundred homes that aren't connected. Is that still accurate information? Yes. Okay. 
So your goal, I'm guessing, was kind of two part. One, to make connectivity better on the places that had some connection, but also reach that 25% that it wasn't or isn't connected. Yes. Okay. Yes. So going back to the beginning of this, um, I also really love the origin story, which is that it seems like every tribe, because there's no one size fits all for broadband in indigenous communities, and because there are 574 federally recognized tribes that each have different priorities and challenges, um, and then, you know, all different, all, all sorts of different um, like I said, priorities within those. Um, yours was really education. The, uh, your project was really driven forward by education. And you guys were busing students 40 miles away to take standardized tests. Was that kind of the tipping point of tribal leadership saying, Crystal, we have to do something about this? Definitely. So we didn't actually have to bust them. That was the that was the um, solution that we were faced with. Mm, so um, back in yeah, so back in 2013, there was um, the Office of Superintendent for Public Instruction for Washington State issued a um, new policy where all students would have to take these state mandated tests by a broadband link. And this is to be able to develop um, individualized learning plans for each student. Um, and, and it's a great idea, but it has the assumption that every student has a broadband connection mm -hmm. at their school at home but at their school which is not the case and so that was yeah the the, um, the alternative um the solution for that was we're gonna have to take um the entire school the entire school to the nearest um broadband link which is um, about 45 minutes away by bus and um go into and this is again on hairpin curves um, on a bus um, to a new school where you've never been it smells weird there's teachers you've never seen before and if you have test anxiety forget it you know yeah and yeah so, that's so many hoops to have to jump through just to take a test that's already stressful exactly exactly and I mean and the logistics alone is a, is a nightmare I mean busing an entire school and, and then doing um because they, they have to you know th that other school still has to do their testing as well so um being able to have our we have our kids take the test here has always you know and and let me go back a bit further um the school sits on my family land the school um, was donated the land for the school was donated by my great-grandfather luke markishtam senior um, so that the state, because he was tired of sending his kids to boarding school, um, we need our own school here. And um, the state agreed and said, okay, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and build a school there. And this was back in um, the 1920s. And, um, you know, ever since then, um, education has just been in so important to, it's a cornerstone to our culture. And um, my family in particular, I have, uh, I think that the last count we have six um, people that are in the education system as either teachers or administrators or on school boards. And so my family is super involved with, with school and kids and education. Um, so, I mean, even, even personally, uh, first as a macaw, but I mean, also then as from the Hadaway Markishton family, it was important that we provide everything our students need on their reservation mm -hmm. and, so, and at home for, because not every kid is 
McCaw um, that goes to school here. So it, it was really important. Um, and and the, the thing with that particular project was that the stars aligned perfectly throughout the, we were able to construct a middle mile infrastructure in four months, which is pretty much unheard of. I mean, That's we're talking- amazing. Yeah, we're talking- Talking FCC licenses, we're talking equipment was delivered and installed, and we were live in four months. Um, so, and I also, I also realize that's an anomaly. Um, not every project is going to um, end up working out like that. But for that particular project, it was, um, we were able to um, avoid having to send all of our kids off the reservation to take those tests. The other thing too, is that we're doing incredibly well with our kids, you know, I mean, the, it's not just about the kids having to take the test, but they, um, you know, there's been so much progress that has been made with our school, um, you know, being continuously named as a school of distinction, both nationally and regionally and state. And these are, you know, um, schools of distinction are not just, you had good um, test scores one year. No, you've had consistent test scores and they have been improving and you know getting you're doing something right with your kids um i mean there's so many different awards and accolades that the school has been given and, and it's not that the school has set out to get those awards it's they set out to provide a good education system and has gotten those awards as a result I love that. And y'all must be so proud, both of the team that made that happen, but also of the kids who, you know, that makes it so clear that these kids just needed the resources in order to flourish. And, the, and that's what they're doing. And that's so, so cool. Yes, it is. It was so wonderful. They, um, when we, <laughs> about two months after we had finished um, with the middle mile construction, the um, fourth grade uh, made a video and it was, it was super cute because they were showing um, how slow it was before and, and, you know, showing the kids as they're waiting for the page to load. And then, and, and after um, <laughs> of how fast it was and, and they were thanking us and it was the most adorable video I've ever seen in my life. It, it I love that. <laughs> and your daughter was in this school, right? She was in fourth grade when you started the project? Yes, yes. Cool, so it, she's got to really um, see the huge difference that you were able to help make. Yes, it's really exciting for her to be able to say that yeah we, you guys will have good internet soon <laughs> yeah, kind of the inside information <laughs> I love that so much um can we talk a little bit about the network that you were able to build um you began with a wireless network right and um for people who aren't familiar with some of these terms that we've thrown around like uh, middle mile or last mile or, or first mile, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, can you talk a little bit about what middle mile is, what, you know, what ISPs called last mile, but we call first mile is, and how that matters when you're setting up a network in your community? Yes. So your middle mile network is where you're going to get your internet feed from. Um, and so this is like, finding water and you know you have water pipes but you need a dam to fill those pipes and so that's the middle mile is is the dam and um it's important to be able to um, access this middle mile um internet feed so that you can then 
proceed, you know, last mile, first mile. And I really like the first mile because, I mean, this is really what it's about, right? I mean, it's about that that user um, who's using it at home. Um, and so ISP is a, a internet service provider. Um, and even going further, there's two other terms that um, I'll be using, um, not interchangeably, but very often. So WISP, um, that's the wireless internet service provider, and TISP, which is the tribal internet service provider. Um, and, and so these, uh, the, the middle mile is really important for any um, local network um, because without that middle mile, you're not going to be able to get that, that signal to that first mile, that those users are not going to be able to have that. Um, it's also been um, historically not, hmm, it hasn't there, I don't know of any middle mile um, infrastructure, no, middle mile providers that are tribally owned. So this is an area where it's not a tribally owned type of um, industry, but tribes need to have access to it. Um, it's, it's imperative that they have access to it actually. And so um, building those relationships with the middle mile providers, um, it, it can be challenging. It can be um, an area of setback, but it also has the potential to be um, very rewarding and a, um, an ideal partnership because both parties have just as much to lose as they have to gain in those situations. So is it accurate that um, you guys worked with CenturyLink for your backhaul? No, it is not. Oh. Um, so we have, yeah. So, um, okay. So we have, um, CenturyLink is our um, incumbent. They're the ones who have presence here. Um, and it was a it was a struggle because uh, we were wanting them to upgrade their infrastructure. So we were, you know, we were dealing with um, super slow speeds, uh, 34 kilobytes per second, um, which is much slower than dial up. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you're aging as you're watching this, try to love, <laughs> like literally in years. <laughs> um, but so, and, and they were very reluctant um, because it didn't fit a business plan. Um, we don't have the population. Um, and we don't have the, um, the income within our population to support that. Um, and so they, they were just very reluctant to, um, to increase their infrastructure. They eventually did utilizing CAF round two funds um, in 2017. And, but even with that upgrade, quote unquote upgrade, um, it didn't reach everybody on the reservation and it didn't provide everybody with the same standard service. So um, uh, for instance, I live probably about a mile and a half away from their central office on the reservation, which is where their fiber went to. And it, the internet is delivered to my home by copper. Um, and I'm getting about eight megs. Mm -hmm. um, that's not terrible. It's not great. You know, I mean, it, we were able kind of to be able to do dual Zooms. Um, but anyways, so CenturyLink, um, our internet, um, our backhaul is provided to us through Olipin, um, which is also the company that we go through for our operations and maintenance of the network. They also do all of our engineering um, for both fiber and wireless. Um, the other thing too is um, he does, uh, my engineer does a lot of project management 
um, as far as construction or fiber construction, tower construction, um, you know, like generator placement. I mean, seriously, if you can get yourself a doc, a doc Badeau, <laughs> engineer who, a jack of all trades, who can do it all um, and does it happily because this, you know, that's his happy place. Um, but so with CenturyLink, you know, it, it was a really difficult, um, it, it was difficult to build that relationship up. Um, so we started our dialogue with them in 2015 once they announced that they were going to be upgrading to um, fiber, to bringing fiber to Nia Bay. And um, so we worked with them on, on this fiber bill because there were a lot of different, there's, when you go over different lands, whether it's state-owned or federal or tribally-owned, um, there's a lot of different procedures that you need to be aware of and familiar with. Um, and one of them is the, the um, right-of-ways and the easements for, um, through BIA. Um, when you're dealing with tribal lands. So this was an area where it did take a long time because we weren't dealing with just tribally owned land. We were dealing with individual allotments as well. And so providing that connection between the Alati and CenturyLink, we were that essential bridge between the two in order to be able to get that project completed. Um, there were several delays in the project, um, but that's to be expected. Um, and I wish I would, I wish somebody would have told me that at the time, like you should expect delays in, in yeah. construction. Um, but in retrospect, you know, it was, uh, that was the um, turning point between our um, CenturyLink and the Macaw Tribes relationship. That's when we truly started to um, develop synergy um, because they're, they're essential and they understand that they, we need better service and they're doing what they can um maybe it's not as fast to what i would like but it is what it is um and so we've been able to um negotiate with them uh even further after that um because um you know we we needed um that fiber to be extended uh, and so there were some areas where um, we needed a lease. They didn't have, you know, there was um, certain paperwork that wasn't completed that we used um, as leverage to our advantage. Like, hey, you guys owe us this, but you know what? We'll go ahead and waive it if you guys build out. Mm -hmm. And they're like, okay, cool. We can do that. And um, the thing is, is that it's taken a lot of time. Um, so, you know, those first initial talks were back in 2015, six years ago now. Um, and now we're on our third project um, negotiations with CenturyLink and um, just, you know, making sure that everything is in order, every, you know, all the ROWs are signed, all the environmentals are done. Um, and then now we're at a point where we can actually um, start to look back at their inventory and what they have on the reservation and line that up with the paperwork. Y'all have your right of ways for this? Because we aren't seeing anything here. And so that's a, a, another area where, um, and I'm sure this is true for all tribes across the nation, where um, you have presence from an industry um, and there aren't any right of ways or easements um, or leases that have been signed, approved and on the books. And so, you know, what's the alternative? You rip out the infrastructure? You know, that's not likely um, because 
when I, you know, at the end of the day, you still need that service. So using those as a way to start to build the relationship and um, hopefully create synergy um, because their projects are going to catapult our projects. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, um, essentially we, we would like to get a um, DSLAM from them. And I don't know what DSLAM stands for, so don't please make me. Can you explain? Can you explain it without telling us so what it stands for? <laughs> so it's a um, it, it's a it's it's a middle mile, um, mm -hmm. but that it's a middle mile that's close to your. Um, I don't know. I guess it would be like a fiber backhaul, mm -hmm. is how I see it. Which is kind of the pinnacle. Um, that's what it's a a good one. It's what people yes. want. Yeah. Yes, and it's stable. Okay, so I want to make sure that I understand, sorry for the redundancy, but so it seems like you were having these conversations with CenturyLink about bringing some fiber um, closer to the community, if not in the community on one side, right? Yes. And then you're, but simultaneously, you're saying we're not going to wait on this negotiation with CenturyLink to go through because that's not going fast enough. We need to connect these kids now. So we're going to figure out our own wireless network that you partnered with, um, what'd you call them, OliNet? OliPen. OliPen, that yeah. we're, you partnered with OliPen for backhaul in order to do a microwave wireless network. Yes. Okay, got it. That, that seems really smart. And it seems like what a lot of tribes are having to do of like, you do want something stronger and more sustainable like fiber um, in the long run, but that's not gonna happen as quickly, nearly as quickly as it can with wireless and microwave, um, but also wireless is not going to be as strong. And so it's kind of always this trade-off of, you know, do we want to connect sooner and not have as reliable or strong of a connection and, but it'd be cheaper, um, or do we want to really invest in a stronger, longer connection that um, is going to take a lot longer, but is also going to be a lot more expensive, um, but will last a, ideally a long time. Um, and it seems like you guys just really had to weigh the pros and cons of that. And you chose to do both at the same time, but um, to really just kind of juggle those. Yeah, um, you know, a, a lot of it too was um, sovereignty based and autonomy based. We mm -hmm. wanted, uh, you know, we're, um, we're tired of, of being dependent on, on um, a company to provide us services who are gonna, you know, charge us outrageous prices for subpar service. Um, that was, you know, uh, what really drove a lot of it. Um, the other thing too, yeah, definitely CenturyLink could not be part of the solution for the school that they required. Um, and so, yeah, we, we couldn't wait for them to do this, but, um, you know, at the same time, um, when we decided to go wireless, one of the justifications that was utilized was like, you know what, this can be a redundancy down the line. Mm -hmm. um, we can use this as our primary network, but um, once we start to get into fiber, we can utilize this as, as our backup. Um, if, if fiber breaks, which it does, um, then we have a, a wireless system that we can still operate and, and operate um, fully on. So it was really important um, to understand that we're adding to our infrastructure inventory, um, even though, you know, wireless isn't going to provide us the um, strongest signal at this point, what it does is it starts to establish the network. 
-hmm. starts to establish the connections that we need to get to different people. And at that time, it was the, the connections to the different tribal buildings. So when we um, built that middle mile network, it was meant for um, tribal government and the school. Um, and so we have a campus, um, it has about 17 buildings on it, um, but not all the tribal services are located on that campus. And so in 2016, it became evident that we needed to include these other tribal buildings that aren't on the tribal center campus, but are located throughout the village. And so we added a WDS arm, which is a wireless distribution system. Um, so we added a, an arm and um, while we were able to provide connection, it hasn't been, it, it's actually been a, a headache for us since its inception. Um, it, the, it, we're not, I'm not sure if it's the engineering, I'm not sure if it's the um, devices, um, but we do end up having a lot of problems with that, those particular um, buildings when we have um, adverse weather. So when we get those wind storms that come in, at, you know, clocking 80 miles an hour, yeah, wireless is, is going to take a hit on the signals. Um, so, but yeah, we did do, um, we decided that we're going to work on several different projects simultaneously that are all going to add up into the infrastructure um, that is located on the Macaw Reservation. That's great. And that hopefully is another piece of encouragement to people who might just be starting this journey, which is that you are probably going to have a process of um, trial and error, both with hardware, the actual equipment that you're using, the software, the programs that you're using, and even the partnerships um, of you know who will be able to, who will work with tribes in a way that's respectful, who understands how to respect sovereignty, who doesn't. And it's always kind of going to be this process of like, okay, this worked fine, but we want something a little bit better. Let, now that we have it established, let's start looking. Right, right. I want to talk a little bit about a little bit more about um, relationships. And um, it, we, we talked a little bit about your relationship with CenturyLink and kind of the bargaining chips that you were able to leverage in that relationship. Um, but one that's a little bit more cohesive, maybe, is your um, I've heard you say that you have about an eight member team. So who is this team that helped you with this project? You mentioned um, your, I, I think you said IT director, um, but who else was helping you with this? And um, you know, who, were, who was with you as you were getting this off the ground? Wow, when I, when I think back to um, you know, when our journey began, um, initially it was, um, she was at, she's actually my sister-in-law, Michelle Parkin. Um, mm -hmm. she's, um, at the time she was the, um, community liaison for the school. She's now the superintendent of the school. Cool. Um, the district, yes. First <laughs> Macaw superintendent of the Cape Flattery School District. And awesome. She, oh my gosh, gives me the chills. <laughs> um, so, you know, she was a rock star um, because she's very driven and, and very, um, uh, I don't want to say pushy, but she, you know, she does push you to get the stuff done. Um, so there's also um, my my boss, Bud Denny, who has a, a lot of um, years in, um, and experience in developing businesses and business management. Um, so he was essential. Uh, Lois Peterson, our ASD um, Administrative Services Director, um, she was also essential in knowing the different systems within the tribal organization for funding and funding mechanisms, um, because it's it's not just give you 
give someone money and, and it's there, it, it's not quite that easy. Um, it's pretty convoluted actually. Uh, and so then there's also, you know, our IT department was involved in it. Um, Larry Murner from the school IT, it was a partnership with Cape Flattery School District and the Makaji tribe, because we both had the same objective and goals that we needed to meet. Um, and as time went on, there were people that um, have, you know, the other thing too is John Krause was essential in the beginning from, and he was from Mobilisa. Um, they, Mobilisa uh, closed their doors, unfortunately, and we had to go and find um, a new um, contractor. And when you brought that up about um, working with people who understand and, and respect sovereignty and, and tribes, um, I, I, that is so important um, because that is one of the things that I did run into when I had to find a new uh, contractor to do the O&M, the operations and maintenance for the network. Um, we, we came across one and um, it wasn't that, I, I won't ever say that he was disrespectful, but we were pretty low on his priority list. And, um, you know, it was um, kind of rough to deal with that. Um, and we amicably parted ways and decided, you know, this isn't a good fit for either of us. So, um, so let, let's go ahead and go. Um, and in recent years, so then we, that's when we brought Doc Baudet on, Chuck Baudet. Um, and in recent years, I would say in the last five years, uh, Chief Jasper Bruner, uh, Chief of Police for Neve Public Safety has been an essential piece of this network and construction and getting, making it a reality. Um, in, in the years of 2017 to about 2019, um, that, those were really big years for um, public safety, emergency preparedness and communications. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we really hit hard on those areas um, because of our location. So uh, while we are um, the most Northwest point of the United States, so we're where the Strait of Juan de Fuca meets the um, Pacific Ocean. So all of those containers that come to Seattle from Japan or China, they go by my house. And yeah. so that makes our location a, a very strategic location as far as um, domestic terrorism or international terrorism. Um, mm -hmm. We also have FAA sites that could be different. So we utilize those to our advantage in grants. Um, and um, when, when Jasper came on, that's when, um, that's when we really started to incorporate more of these different um, areas, uh, you know, um, because it started out hitting hard on education um, and um, that kind of, I mean, it's still needed and it's still there, but, you know, then we shifted to public safety and now, now it's public health um, and um, doing, being able to operate in safe conditions. Um, and so, um, you know, those are the essential people to this project. Um, I mean, I know a lot of credit is given to me. I do, I do carry a lot of the weight. I'm not going to even try to um, dance around that. But at the same time, these are the people that give me expertise in areas that I don't have. These are the people that give me guidance in areas that I need that I don't have the time to learn about because this project is so fast. And, and so these are the people that I rely on to, to help keep the project well-rounded and moving. I love that, just thinking about how things function in small communities back home um, at, on the Navajo Nation. It, 
it always kind of makes me laugh and makes me really proud to think about what indigenous brilliance actually looks like, because it doesn't necessarily look like somebody sitting in a fancy Silicon Valley office wearing an expensive suit like we think it, you know, of like these tech genius people. Um, but working in indigenous communities, I have seen so much expertise and so many brilliant people, you know, wearing their car hearts and like working out in the field, uh, people who are, have been doing this for a long time, people who have been running uh, wireless ISPs or even just researching it and know a lot about computers um, who hold so much knowledge who are already in our communities and maybe just ha either haven't been empowered to do this sort of work or haven't been asked to yet. Um, but I, I always feel so proud when I am talking to someone sitting across the table from someone who really knows about all this stuff that you maybe wouldn't think um, because it's not packaged in the way that we are used to seeing, you know, tech geniuses or whatever. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, the wearing of so many different hats um, yeah. within tribal communities, um, you know, that's how, that's how we end up being so well-rounded and, um, you know, uh, <laughs> Jack of all trades. Um, yes, it's, it's really you're so right on that. You're so on the money. Um, I, I laugh because I like to. I really do because I'm like five foot nothing, and so I need to like boost my height. So I love to wear high heels, right? But at the same time, when I'm in the field, uh, I, I get kind of you know people kind of are taken aback because I'll show up in my extra tough, my rubber boots, and my flannel. <laughs> so. Go get a girl who can do both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then go home and make your fry bread and raise crispy treats for the bake sale. That's right. And, and gather <laughs> cedar bark. <laughs> yeah. That's great. That's, like I said, indigenous brilliance in a nutshell. Um, I have two really important questions I definitely want to get to. And then um, I posted on my Instagram this morning. I'm on Instagram at Blackwater Soul. Um, I put out a call for questions and people had so many really good questions for you. And so I wanna definitely get to a couple of those. Um, but first I wanna talk a little bit about funding. Um, one article, an early article I read about this said that um, in 2013, you realized that you weren't even ready to apply for the USDA Connect, uh, Community Connect grant. Um, so what was the process of finding funding, that can be one of the most daunting parts of building a network um, because there, there are sources of funding, but there always, it seems like there's always so many hurdles to get something funded. Um, so what was that process like for you for finding the money? Whew. Okay. So, um, you know, to begin with, um, I went into this thinking that I was going to, um, I was going to approach this as I would any other project. I was going to find a grant that would pay for it all. And we're going to move on along our, our lives. That is not the case. Um, you know, um, 2013, the Community Connect funds, the, there were about $12 million available nationwide. Um, my project alone had a price take of about $2.5 million. Um, and so we were looking at a big chunk of that money to serve maybe 1,500 people, if that. And so um, it, it, it wasn't going to be competitive. It wasn't going to really even be taken seriously. Um, so what we, okay, we can't go, we are not going to be able to find a funding source that is going to pay for every, for the entire network. So we need to start breaking it down. We need to break it down into 
the more digestible chunks. Um, and so that means we need to be prepared to do a lot of reporting um, because the way that we've approached our project is um, we break everything down into every, um, every objective is its own grant. Um, so to begin with, we did a feasibility study um, and that, that really gave us an idea of where we were at in our network growth and, and, and also our understanding that, and, because I look at it in retrospect seven years later and I'm like, oh, she had really, she had an idea of what she wanted, but she didn't go about it in the right way. Um, and, and did the tribe pay for the feasibility study or did you write a grant for the feasibility study? So we, yeah, we um, got a grant from the Washington State Department of Commerce Community Economic Revitalization Board. So cool. that was heard. Um, we got $50,000 from them to complete this feasibility study. And we were looking at what it's going to cost to become an ISP. Also, the cost of um, closing that 19-mile fiber gap mm -hmm. um, and comparing that to what it would take to deploy wirelessly. Um, we were nowhere near uh, ready for any of that, honestly, when mm -hmm. I look at this in retrospect. Um, but it gave us a starting point. And, and so from there, that's, that's how we approached the project is every... Thing was its own grant. So we went on further to do a, um, we submitted grants to Tribal Homeland Security to do a um, radio study. And so this is going to be looking at different locations within the reservation of how to, uh, where a good strategic location for a radio would be because we have black holes um, in as far as communication goes on the reservation. And so we end up the, a search and rescue mission can become just daunting. Um, because there's no, you're out there deaf, you, you can't hear anything because there isn't any communication. Wow. Um, so, so utilizing that as a way to, um, then we also utilize that um, funding source um, for construction funds for a tower. And this was, we labeled it as a communications tower, not as a public safety tower, not as a broadband tower, but communication so that we could incorporate everything into it. Um, and, and also, you know, when you, constructing towers, the other thing that people should really be looking at is um, potential revenue from leasing those uh, that tower space to industry or other areas um, that want to, that need to have communications on your reservation. Um, so that was, you know, breaking it down like that has been um, the, um, the successful part of our recipe. Um, and, but as I said, you know, there's also a downside to that. You, you're doing a lot of reporting. Um, I, I probably spend about maybe 20 to 25% of my time doing reports. And that's because we've been able to stack up so many different grants to do, to move this project along. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's another piece of good advice, I think, for someone who is facing such a daunting project is that you don't have to do it all at once, that, uh, you know, it has to happen in steps and doing it in steps is going to make it a lot uh, less overwhelming, knowing that you don't have to build out this huge, perfect network today. You know, you just have to find money for a feasibility study today and then get advice on where to go from there. Exactly. And the other one other essential piece of advice that I would let people know is that um, you will be you will be doing more than one feasibility study. Mm. Don't get married to your first feasibility study and, and don't think that that's the end all be all. 
um, because there are other ways of looking at things. And so, you know, you're gonna be doing technical feasibility studies, will this um, spectrum work on a reservation? Um, and also financial feasibility studies, how much is it gonna, you know, what's the OPEX, what's the CAPEX? Um, what are, are we going to be um, losing money? Are we going to be making money? Or is it, are we gonna just be breaking even? Yeah. That's really good advice because I could see that being really discouraging if you thought that was it and then you have you kind of have to start back at square one. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about working with Senator Maria Cantwell. Um, it seems like she was really helpful at certain points. And so I'm wondering how um, what you needed from a senator, what that relationship, the start of that relationship looked like and what she was able to help with or not help with? You know, I think it really felt in those early days, it really felt as if CenturyLink wasn't taking us seriously. Mm. They were not looking at us as an actual partner. They were looking at us as kind of like um, that annoying mosquito that will just not go away um, mm. and won't die. Um, you know, they, there were these regional meetings and um, they would send representatives there, but they would send representatives who couldn't answer questions or who couldn't make decisions or who would just give you that canned answer. I'll look into it and get back to you and you'd never hear from them again because the next meeting they'd send someone different. Yep. Um, and so with um, Senator Cantwell, she gave us um, that legitimacy. She legitimized um, the Macaw tribe and all tribes as viable partners, as people who do need to be taken seriously, um, as, you know, not just customers, but these are also additional governments that need to be respected as you would respect the United States government. Um, Senator Cantwell, she truly legitimized um, tribal efforts on that. The other thing too is that, um, and I'm not sure if she's still with her, I hope she is, um, Narda Jones, man, that girl, she knows her stuff. So um, Narda Jones came to Senator Cantwell from the FCC. So she has a lot of um, background in the, that um, communication policy and laws. And so she was able to really interpret those for us and give us guidance and also provided to be that bridge between CenturyLink and Macaw Tribe to be able to move um, in the same direction to get the you know, shared objectives completed. That sounds super helpful. That sounds like a really um, clear example of somebody using their platform and their privilege to lift an indigenous community up, which is a lot of what we've been calling for for a long time. And it sounds like she did that really well. Yes, she did without even, I mean, we, we told her the issue we asked for her assistance and it was, you know, no hesitation, boom. Okay, let's get that call. Let's get going on this. Let's That's start great. Doing it. And she's That's the great. reason why, yeah, she's the reason why we have a tech team developed. So, um, you know, Senator Cantwell, if you're listening, thank Shout you. Shout out. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> cool. Um, okay. I want to get to some of these Instagram questions because people ask me such brilliant things. I'm, uh, I don't assume that my Instagram followers are stupid by any means, but they constantly surprise me with how brilliant they are at, um, you know, the things that they wonder about and things that they want to know. So I ask them what they want to know about tribal broadband that they don't already know. And um, I think we'll start with a more general one. So Natty Natty 04 asked, what does tribal broadband mean 
why is it different and what are the similarities and differences between this and challenges faced by internetless homes in urban centers? Ooh, that really is. That's a right? deep question. Man, good question. Um, okay, so tribal broadband is, um, I mean, it's, it said in its title, it's broadband that is tribal. And um, the thing that makes it a bit different than um, other internet or broadband is that it can be, the networks can be owned by the tribes, whereas, and full autonomy, um, whereas, you know, you can, you can put up and construct other smaller um, networks that are owned by communities. Um, I encourage you to do so. Um, but this is, um, Tribal broadband and, and um, connectivity is, is the 21st century in which we will be um, able to assert, solidify, and strengthen our sovereignty. This is how we are going to um, continue to protect our treaty rights, to continue to educate our children and keep our people healthy. Um, you know, any, it's, um, Broadband touches everything, right? I mean, and we, we start to list off all the things that it touches and, and that it impacts. But I, I want I always like to flip that, you know, tell me something broadband doesn't touch. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it touches everything. So everything. So it, it, it's a it's a road, you know, and, and like just like my one way, one in and one out, one way out road. Um, this is important because it's going to this is a 21st century road and we need to build this so it can be um generations can use it um, down the line. How yeah. it makes it different is, is, is the ownership. It makes it different than, you know, on tribal land, it, it's, it's different because it's that ownership piece versus off reservation. Yeah, and there's all sorts of regulatory pieces that come with that as far as on reservation, like you were talking about with the easements and rights of way. Um, and those are all things that, um, can be challenging, but also have solutions. And as you've proven, can be navigated with, um, you know, everyone getting on board. Right. Um, this next one is kind of, um, kind of goes off of that well. So Machine Human asks, could tribes regulate the telecoms, like not just for tribal lands, but for everyone? And I think he means like ISPs. Um, so like AT&T or um, T-Mobile or, or somebody like that. And my first thought is, they, they, I don't know about regulate, but they can be them. You know, we are, you're, we're creating tribal ISPs, um, TISPs. I've never heard that one, but I like that you said that. And um, I don't know if Macaw or other tribes are do, putting that, starting to put regulatory codes into their tribal codes, um, but that definitely seems like the future to me. What do you think? I definitely think that's part of the future. In fact, um, the task force, um, the FCC task force has started to work on um, a best practices codes um, booklet. And so, yeah, we, we can be them. Um, I, I think also um, we can regulate them to a point on our reservation lands. Um, but that means, you know, you gotta be, you gotta develop those robust policies and those very strong codes in order to be able to enforce them. Because it's one thing to, um, it's one thing to develop them. It's another thing entirely to enforce them. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's really sovereignty in a nutshell is writing that code 
um, for regulatory or you know tax schemes or or whatever to say you're functioning on our lands. These are sovereign lands, and this these are the rules. You can either choose to participate and play by our rules, or you can choose not to. But that's up to you. Um, here's a COVID question. How has the COVID-19 pandemic changed the current approach toward tribal broadband strategy and in particular tribal broadband's role in telehealth? Wow, I was just talking about this with my 16-year-old daughter last night. That's um, a good one. Because we, we watched um, Kong versus Godzilla last night and okay. she went, wait, this is in the theaters too? And I said, yeah, baby girl, the COVID changed everything. It's changing how we're functioning in our life. Yeah. Um, you know, they're doing these simultaneous um, releases when it's in the theaters and, and um, online um, available for streaming. So um, with um, tribal health, it's um, the, the fissures in the infrastructure in particular on tribal lands have become glaringly obvious um, because there are so many um, infrastructure uh, cracks. I mean, there's, it's not fully connected. It's not fully been invested in. Um, and, and, you know, last year I was, um, I don't I don't remember which, um, which conference it was, but um, I was talking about the fact that um, there has not been a federal government agency that has focused on tribal broadband development. You can shoehorn those um, those costs into other areas, um, such as public safety or education or um, health, but you're doing it at, at a risk of robbing Peter to pay Paul. So now with this billion dollar NTIA um, tribal broadband fund, now it's being taken seriously. You know, they're looking at it from a standpoint of this needs a major investment. Um, we need to get everyone at the same level so then they can start to build according to whatever their needs are or whatever their challenges are. Um, and so it, it, also in health, this is going to, I mean, for these rural areas, once they get connected, I, I don't know about you. So I don't know about for your lands, but my lens to go to see a um, specialized doctor in Seattle, that's a four hour drive mm, one way. Yeah. And so, you know, you think about the resources and, and then the toll it takes on your body and your car, mm -hmm. um, you know, how, how effective is it truly? Uh, and, but, but okay, let's, let's, you know, do the inverse. And, and now we're going to be doing these by telehealth. So hopefully you can do a, a zoom healthcare appointment and, rather than taking two days um, to go see a doctor for a half hour, you're able to just do the half hour appointment and move along with your life and continue to heal without yeah. having to um, expand all your resources. Yeah, to take time off of work, to find childcare. There's so many things that go into that, you know, what, 10 hour round trip. Um, exactly. That could be, you're right, 30 minutes. And that's huge. Um, you just mentioned something that, will take us to our last question. This is from Kelly970. And she asks, is Joe Biden's trillion dollar effort going to make a difference? Um, my answer is, I mean, ideally, yes. Um, but the question is how much of that will be eaten up by administrative costs when we're talking about tribal broadband. And we know that in the federal government, they're not exactly the most efficient being out there. Um, and so what do you think about, uh, there's been talk of, especially with Deb Holland being at the helm of Department of Interior, people are talking about making Interior kind of the hub, the central place for tribal broadband. Do you think that would 
help get more of that trillion dollars out or do, um, and or however much of it is going to Indian country broadband or do you think that would only slow it up what are what are your thoughts on all of it well since um, since it's already in motion to have NTIA administer the funding I think if we were to um, switch it over to interior um, there would be a holdup I do believe that NTIA should work closely with the Department of Interior to um, to ensure that these there's going to be roadblocks, you know, I, I talked about right of ways and easements. Um, those are definitely going to come into play um, with this trillion or trillion. Gosh, I wish it was a trillion <laughs> billion. First things first. Um, so with this billion dollar fund, um, you know, I, I do see, and the, the billion dollar fund has a, a timeline attached to it mm -hmm. of December 31, 22. And so, you know, when you talk construction projects, that's extremely short time frame um, and then when you're talking construction projects that need to do go through that ROW or easement or even the environmental process those are some pretty um, long delays and so uh, back to the question um, of you know getting eaten up by administrative costs I, I do worry about that as well um, what I I do think it's going to make a big difference in Indian country I mean you know I think about it there has not been an investment to this to this level in Indian country at once for a focused reason. Never in the history of America has that ever happened. Um, and so this is, it's significant. Uh, what I worry about is um, we're talking about construction and getting these networks up and going, but what we're, what I don't hear enough of is sustainability. What are we going to do to ensure that these investments, it's not just a one-time investment, and, and, and how are we going to make sure that these investments last a long time? Uh, how can we stretch out the life of this investment? Um, and so I, I really feel like this, this just has to be the beginning. This has to be the, the first of, of a few or, or met, hopefully many um, packages where there is a, um, a pointed effort to um, fund tribal broadband and tribal networks. Yeah, and I think your estimation at one point was, or maybe a feasibility study told you that for a fiber network, it would be a few, a few million dollars to start and then half a million dollars or more to operate throughout the year. Is that right? Yep. And so, yeah, when you're thinking about the sustainability of offering service to residents um, and, you know, who's going to pay that? Is the tribe just going to foot that bill? Can they do that? Will that create debt? Um, how much of that cost are you going to pass on to the people who you're trying to serve in the first place and not trying to burden financially? Um, are you just going to try to get grants? And it, what if you don't get a grant one year? And these are all very real questions when we're talking about the sustainability of a network um, and building something that will last for our children, grandchildren and beyond. Definitely, definitely. Um, you know, and that's the thing too, is, is um, I, I've been struggling with this myself is like, okay, we were working on getting this network up and going. And then people are like, okay, well, what about this after that? I'm like, well, you know, I can only do so much. Um, I, I need about two to three years to be able to figure out that sustainability plan. And I, you know, in a perfect world, we would have this sustainability plan figured out before we even start to do construction of the network. But because of COVID, we're kind of in this weird place, right? And, mm -hmm. and so, um, but I mean, I, I do know that there's um, some subsidy programs out there that I think if with some policy work, 
Um, you know, there's all of those USAC programs, the Lifeline, um, there's the E-Ray that mm -hmm. organizations can, can capitalize on. There's the Rural Healthcare Fund. Um, there's also, um, you know, leasing out some of your um, infrastructure to help offset those costs and, and help, you know, every, every penny counts, every dollar mm -hmm. stacks up. Um, and then also looking at, so how can you utilize this as a different service? I mean, can you do some storage services maybe? Can you do security services from it? Um, you know, how can you utilize this particular network to do something you wouldn't have been able to do if it weren't for that network? Mm -hmm. um, you know, like cybersecurity. Um, you wouldn't be able to do cybersecurity without a network. But now that you have the network, Let's start training people. Let's let's start looking at how we can develop our own workforce development. Because as you said earlier, you know we do have all of this indigenous brilliance and capabilities and competencies within our own reservations, within our own people. I, I mean, and this is again the, the the entire sovereignty model. This is for us by us. Yep, definitely. And I'll just put in a plug. This is a completely different podcast, but um, I think that part of that solution is definitely spectrum sovereignty and having um, indigenous rights over spectrum leases so that that can help also offset costs um, for the users of the internet. Um, but there are all sorts of different ways to fund it. And I have absolutely no doubt that you will find the best solutions for Macaw and be able to help a lot of other tribes along the way who undertake a project like this. Um, are there any final things that we didn't touch on that you would like to talk about before I let you go? Oh, wow. There, you know, I, I could really go on for hours about tribal broadband and um, giving advice and, and talking about my project. Um, I, I just, I want to thank you for your work. Um, I, I've read um, a lot of your recent articles. Um, I, I just, I get so pumped um, when I read your stuff. So uh, thank you for your work. I, I don't have anything to add, but I do want to um, let you let people know that they can contact me um, by oh, email if they have any questions. So that's crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L dot Hottaway, H-O-T-T-O-W-E at Macaw, M-A-K-A-H dot com. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. I think that will be a huge resource and I hope people take you up on that. Um, yeah, I'm just so thankful for your time and I'm glad that we got to sit down and talk because we've never actually been able to talk this long about tribal broadband, even though we've worked in the same circles for so long. And uh, this has been really great for me as well. So thank you so much. Thank you for the honor of the invitation. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to Determination. This episode is produced by me, Dara Blackwater. This episode is supported by the Tucson Foundations through the University of Arizona College of Law. A big ahead to them both for making these conversations possible. Our intro music today is Move, I'm Indigenous by Akulu Bertelsen, and our outro music is A Distance by Kale Crow. I can head to Kale and Aqualoo for making music for us to thrive to. Until next time, I'm Dara Blackwater. Whatever you plan on doing, I just hope you plan on doing it soon. Cause I'm wide awake, lying away for that embrace to come and leave me in ruin. Remember the time like photographs, the moment passes wicked and cruel. Don't let it ride, find the focus that you started with and just make it through.
Whatever you plan on.